from KQED. What a week of contrast and tone and style in California politics, really. The virtually silent budget signing, uh, an impassioned debate over vaccinations, and California politicos weighing in on the Supreme Court's historic and most sweeping endorsement of same-sex marriage. This is our KQED California Politics Podcast for the week ending June 26th. And along with Marisa Lagos of KQED, I'm John Myers. Anthony York is away this week, and and let's admit it, he will be so sad to miss yet another chance to talk about the budget and vaccines. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, at least gay marriage is fun. I mean... (laughs) He's going to miss that. The question is, what is he doing? I mean, is he in San Francisco at Pride or? (laughs) We don't know where he is. He's working, we think, but he's celebrating in his own way life. I I don't know. So he'll be back with us soon. And, uh, you know, as a as a note to all of our podcast listeners uh, and thank you for listening, by the way, uh, schedules will be kind of wacky over the next few weeks. I'm going to be on vacation. Marisa will be on a vacation. Anthony will be the uh, bon vivant that he is around California. So you'll hear different uh, bits and pieces of us uh, talking politics. But anyway, so let's talk about this week. Um, topic one, as I said here on the on the podcast this week, let's wrap up this 2015-2016 budget, shall we? Let's just get it done. Apparently, the governor felt that way, too, so much that he didn't uh, want to have any pomp or circumstance around the signing of it. He just did it and tweeted out the announcement. Yeah, neither pomp nor circumstance. I like that. So uh, on Wednesday morning, I wrote it down at 11.03 a.m., according to the timestamp on Twitter. uh, The governor tweeted out a photo of himself with the two legislative leaders that said, budget signed, on to the health care and transportation special sessions. So that was it. Um, and by the way, um, podcast audience, the, the way that like reporters like me know when the governor instantly tweets something, you got to turn on that little notification for tweets of people you really care about, and it'll send you the little thing on the lock screen of your phone. That's a little Twitter hint from uh, me to you. But, um, <laughs> Thanks, so, John. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hey, you know, I mean, I am nothing if not helpful. So uh, governor tweeted out that photo an hour later. I love it. An hour later, we get the official news release along with the uh, link to the final documents and the line item vetoes. And then later Wednesday, the governor, speaking of Twitter, uh, we see him in a photo that the Assembly Republican leader, Kristen Olson, tweeted out of them in, in her office. And I should mention a bowl of candy between them. I wanted to know who was eating what candy. Apparently, a, an almond joy was consumed at that meeting, according to Ms. Olson. But it's a good, it's a good, that's a good choice, in my opinion. But and then, of course, somebody tweeted something about almonds and water. But please, that's another podcast. But um, budget by tweet. There it was. So about $167 billion in state spending in this budget, as we talked about last week, about $115 billion in the general fund, and a tiny $1.3 million in line item vetoes, the smallest since 1982 when a younger Jerry Brown vetoed nothing. So what do you make of this? And you were, thankfully, you were here to cover it because I was having dental surgery, which apparently <laughs> is uh, less fun than covering the budget. I am now convinced. So just, I would rather wow, cover that's the a statement. I would rather cover kidding. the budget. But what do you make of it? I mean, I think it speaks to the fact that the governor won. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, not to be glib, but, you know, he really was able to push the legislature to an agreement that he felt very comfortable with, clearly. And, you know, his revenue assumptions essentially won the day. Um, he really, you know, trimmed back most of the asks that lawmakers had made. And I think it just speaks to the fact that, you know, that the, the budget really was finished when they announced it, you know, 
a week and a half ago. It, it was not this was not something where they there was a wink and a nod and he said, OK, fine, I'll blue pencil a bunch of stuff. Um, and I think, you know, the like you said, the line item vetoes were so minor. Um, the biggest one was a million dollar reduction to, to money f- to help restore Clear Lake and Lake County. I mean, even the line item vetoes, Brown made a point to say in all of them, I I, you know, I agree with this idea, but we can find money elsewhere or this isn't necessary. So it wasn't, you know, it just wasn't this nasty budget debate that stretched on and on. Um, and I think it's very Jerry to 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 use Twitter, his office, his administration, you know, to to announce this and to really make it such a low key thing. Um, so, yeah, it's it's interesting. And, and as you mentioned before, you know, the biggest sort of outstanding issues that are far more controversial in many ways than what's included in the budget are these special sessions where they're going to try to come up with over a billion dollars for Medi-Cal. They're going to try to deal with some of this developmental disability money that the advocacy community has really been pushing for. And then they're going to try to figure out a way to, you know, fund our roads, bridges and highways better. And and that's, you know, what, $3 billion a year they're saying in deferred maintenance. So that's really, I think, where the rubber is going to hit the road when it comes to negotiations with the Republicans and with moderate Democrats. and, And, you know, trying to come up with money is a lot easier than trying to spend it. Well, I sat here and I thought a lot about who I would consider winners and losers. And, th- and there's danger in doing that sometimes too much in our in our coverage. But I mean, you know, on a on a weekending analysis podcast, you know, what the heck, we can at least talk about a little of that. Um, I mean, and, and I think I agree with with what you've said, because some of those are on my list. I mean, you know, first and foremost, the governor is, is a winner in this. I mean, I would I was thinking about it uh, this morning. Somebody's going to think this is an insane way to, to make an analogy, but whatever, it's mine. Um, if most uh, budget negotiations that we've covered as reporters and that people watch between governors and legislators are like haggling over the price of a car or something. This was the CarMax experience. I mean, in other words, like there was no haggling. <laughs> this is the price, and you take it or you don't get it. Um, was a shout out for CarMax, John. I, yeah, I did not not you know CarMax has their you know and they made some headlines this week or the other week. Anyway, I'm not trying to make a, an assessment about CarMax, please, podcast audience. I'm just I'm looking to make the point that there was not a lot of negotiating here, and I think the line item vetoes are a great example um, of where you can see things that were outstanding in negotiations that didn't get settled, that governors get to have the final say on, and we have seen that in years past, especially with other governors, uh, Schwarzenegger. Uh, especially um, found things that he just decided he never liked and that he let stay in the budget until he scratched them out with his blue pencil. So, I mean, this clearly was a deal that the governor embraced in every way, shape, and form, which I think, you know, uh, uh, highlights what you said, Marisa, that there was no suspense. This was the budget. The governor had made it clear. They voted for something else, but they weren't going to get it. So the governor, I think, is a overall the big the big winner, the um the CarMax guy, please. I'll stop that. Um, and, but also, and it seems—I I was just going to say—it seems like lawmakers, you know, they won some of their stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they did win some, and so that's kind of where I was on my list here of things to check off. I think that um, uh, the Senate President Pro Tem Kevin DeLeon 
and the Latino caucus in particular certainly are winners. I mean, I think if you look at the money for expansion of Medi-Cal for undocumented children in California, I think that is a big win. We talked about that some last week, that that was a caucus priority. Um, I think that um, Democrats in the legislature and advocates of higher education also won because there's not only money for the UC, but there's money for the Cal State system. There was a grumbling that the governor had not given the Cal State system its due in some of the um, budget increases that he had proposed. They got money here. I think that was a win for them. Um, Certainly K through 12 schools and community colleges, um, they win because of the Prop 98 funding guarantee. And really, I mean, the strong, strong reluctance in Sacramento to manipulate that Prop 98 formula, especially when the revenues are coming in. Everybody says, you ain't going to touch it. No, no way, no how. Um, and But then on my losers list, if I can quickly, uh, and you've highlighted some of them, Marisa, uh, the advocates of the developmentally disabled. Uh, there's been this push for restoration of funding cut during the recession. It was in the legislative budget. Uh, whether legislators were going to get everything, no, they weren't from the governor. We've already talked about that. But there was a lot of shock that none of that money made it in. And I think there's some anger that it has to go to this special session where it has to get attached to a revenue increase discussion that makes it hard to pass Republicans. Um, I think that, and there was bipartisan support for uh, some of that funding for the developmentally disabled. So I think that's a they're in that loser category, unfortunately. I think supporters of welfare, most notably State Senator Holly Mitchell and advocates for in- increased help for families on welfare assistance and the, uh, the maximum family grant issue for families that have more children who are still having assistance. Uh, those cash grants for uh, the aged, blind, and disabled, SSI, SSP, we talked about that. And then, you know, to your special session point, I mean, I would really say that potential losers are people who are really interested in a long-term funding structure for health care and transportation because that special session dynamic is a complete crapshoot. I mean, that's money that you have to get um, bipartisan support, two-thirds support, uh, for revenue increases in most cases. And that is a high, high hurdle. And that could be a potential loser, wouldn't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you hit on some interesting points. You know, you mentioned the welfare things. I just would go back, you know, Holly Mitchell refused to vote on the budget, which is, you know, a statement from a right. Democrat. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, it, it was interesting, the uh, kind of dovetailing on what you're saying about the special sessions, you know, the Republican leadership in the Senate did vote for the budget, but then they sent out some statements later saying that they didn't agree with everything, although they were happy that the legislature accepted the lower revenue projections. I think they're really wary of these special sessions. Um, We kind of touched on this last week, but, you know, I'll say it again, because these issues are sort of they they transcend partisan lines, right? Roads and 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 healthcare and things. Um, well, healthcare in some ways transcends partisan lines. <laughs> uh, that's a whole nother podcast, right? But I do I do think that um, this is going it 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 could put them in a very awkward position if they are being asked to vote against funding for roads, um, or you know, or being asked to vote for it. So, and and another thing that we've touched on that I think will be fascinating to see is how that plays out because I think that there is a different class of Republicans in Sacramento. I think that you know 
none of them are you know going to embrace huge tax hikes wholeheartedly. But I think that there is some fatigue on the part of some of the younger or newer members of this sort of just like hold the line, we're the party of no. Um, And so some of the other issues we're going to talk about today touch on that as well, gay marriage being a big one. So I I just think that this is is really where we're going to see a lot more nuance and an interesting debate between these folks. And, you know, again, and I think there's some moderate Democrats that might be in a tough position on revenue issues. You know, if you're from a swing district or a pretty moderate uh, Democratic district that's not safe, you might have some concerns about being the person that raises people's taxes. So we'll see how they frame it. We'll see what they work out. You know, I don't think the governor is going to come out and propose some huge, huge tax hike. That's not his style either. But it is going to be a lot more. um, There's going to be a lot more debate, I believe, than we've seen in the budget process this year. I think so. And I also think it's not going to be something that'll end soon. I think we'll be talking through about this, uh, you know, through the summer. These are tough things to figure out. Uh, here on Friday, uh, Republicans in the state Senate rolled out some ideas on transportation funding. So we'll kind of we'll dig into that in future podcasts um, a little bit about the world of the special session. But um, but that notion of uh, watching where partisan lines uh, fall and how partisan lines can shift, I think, is a great transition to topic two, if we can, on this week's California Politics podcast. Uh, this was a week of another ending, for now at least, we think, on what I, I would argue is really the most high-profile bill in the Capitol this year. And that's not you know, whether I think it should be the most high profile, whether it's the most important, people can quibble with that. But if you just look in terms of the optics and the news coverage and the dynamic, uh, I think a strong candidate is the bill that we saw clear a big hurdle this week, Senate Bill 277, the bill to end most exemptions from vaccines for children in California schools. It's time that we take this very balanced and thoughtful step to increase vaccine rates in our schools, our communities, in our state. That was Assemblymember Lorena Gonzalez, a Democrat from San Diego and a co-author of SB 277, as it was debated on the Assembly floor on Thursday. So the bill passed the Assembly 46 to 31. Uh, There were three Assembly members, all Democrats, who declined to vote on this end to most of those exemptions from uh, vaccinations. Uh, It had bipartisan support and bipartisan opposition, which is what we need to talk about. And now it heads to the state Senate for concurrence because it was amended in the Assembly. I don't think it's going to get stopped there, though, you know, famous last words, let's see what happens, and then it would be off to the governor, and then we can talk about it. But, you know, again, to my transition point here, Marisa, I mean, really interesting uh, bipartisan splits and things that don't come down on party politics uh, often as much as worldviews. Yeah, I mean, I think that in a way it's sort of refreshing to see that because— this shouldn't really be a partisan issue. Um, But, you know, what you heard opponents say, including um, some Democrats, is, yeah, that this is both a personal choice issue and, you know, about constitutional rights to go to school. Um, I think that the the proponents really wanted to focus on the science and, you know, on the safety of kids. Um, But it has. It's been, you know, we said this a week ago. It's who knew this was going to be one of the issues of the year. Um, It's been really fascinating to watch. I think we saw, you know, it come up really quickly in the assembly floor. I believe that the folks pushing it really wanted it to just get done. Um, And so it is certainly I don't I think you're right. I don't don't think this debate is anywhere near over, but it has um, 
to some extent run its course in the legislature. I mean, remind me, in the Senate, were there any Democrats who voted against it? I thought that was a pretty partisan vote. Yes, there were. There, there, there were a handful of Democrats who voted no, and there were also um, there was also some senators who abstained in the Senate too. So, okay, so you know, again, to your point, it, it's it's been mixed. Yeah, it, I think it does transcend politics, and it speaks to you know not only um, how controversial this has become, but how I think personal this type of issue is. I mean, we've talked about that around, you know, the death with dignity bills and other things. I think some of this stuff put, you know, hits on um, sort of personal philosophical views that aren't necessarily tied to whether you have an R or a D next to your name. And anything to do with kids has the tendency, I think, to really bring out people's emotions. And we've certainly seen that with this bill. Um, you know, Although it's interesting, every time I talk to our health editor, Lisa Alaferis, who covers this, she really stresses this point that when you look at the overall numbers and the polling, the opponents of vaccinations really do make up a tiny percentage of the state, which which makes it in some ways even more interesting for the folks who voted against it. Because I don't think I've seen a single lawmaker come out and say, I don't believe in vaccinations. I don't, you know, I don't vaccinate my kids. I think most of them were saying this is a personal belief issue. This is something that government shouldn't be intruding on. Um, uh, Assemblymember Mike Gatto brought up the constitutionality of it. So it, it is it is interesting. It's not um, the same maybe as some debates, you know, that, that people kind of stake their claim in on a personal level, like abortion maybe or something like that. Well, you, you mentioned uh, Mr. Gatto, so let's get right to that uh, cut. So here's Assemblymember Mike Gatto, Democrat of L.A., who talked about constitutional issues. But um, in addition to that, he also... Uh, as an opponent of SB 277, talked about, you know, his concern about the effectiveness of it. Here's a a clip of Mr. Gatto's floor testimony. And think a little deeper and a little more critically for a moment. Here are those same unvaccinated kids who would be forced to homeschool. They're still free to play football with other kids, to, to mingle with them at church, at parks, to go to Disneyland. Adults are still free to go unvaccinated. So this is why some people, perhaps inarticulately, to be sure, have expressed that unless there is some kind of law enforcement mechanism to check everyone's vaccination status and to isolate people, then the law is constitutionally unworkable. And so I think that, you know, that that effectiveness plus constitutional issue was one you heard from people like him. And then while we're on the the uh, the segment here of uh, of what people said on the other side, again, to kind of show the the bipartisan nature of both support and opposition um, as supporter of the bill. Uh, on the Republican side, it was Assemblymember Catherine Baker, Assemblymember from the East Bay. And Ms. Baker used her uh, floor speech to talk a little bit about her own experience when she had to vaccinate her children and came up against the the uh, the shot that a lot of parents know, the MMR shot with measles, mumps, and rubella, and the questions she asked. I cross-examined the pediatrician. I studied the issue, and we made the decision to vaccinate our kids. And my daughter did have a reaction. She did have a very high vaccine, excuse me, high um, temperature reaction, but she broke out in a rash. Took her to the doctor, and the doctor had to bring in a more senior doctor who had seen measles in his lifetime to say, yes, this is a reaction you can have to vaccines. So I'm a co-author of this bill as someone who did not have the straightforward experience with vaccines. And I am a fierce, fierce supporter of parent choice in this decision. But I also believe with choice comes personal responsibility. If you have an effect on other people in your community, you need to take responsibility for that, even if you'd really rather not. 
and if the consequences are not what you would choose. Because we should fight for the liberty not just of those who want not to vaccinate their kids, but those who can't. I think, again, that speaks to the really interesting sort of nuances of this debate, right? Because it's not just folks saying you shouldn't be able to. It's, it's you know, we saw um, a lot of talk this week about this young kid from Marin who can't get vaccinated because he had leukemia. And, you know, the personal liberty issue and the personal responsibility, as I think Miss Baker put it very eloquently, it's not these aren't bright lines here. It's not just as easy as to say, well, I make my choice and, you know, you shouldn't worry about it. Right. There's there's a lot of, of really deep issues here. Um, and again, it's just amazing to me. I guess it's not amazing when you think about those deep issues, but it is just sort of crazy that given all of the work that lawmakers do um, and and so much controversial work, that this is the one that's really sort of hit the nail on the head this year. Well, certainly, I mean, if, if you know, so many times we see these, these issues that... Um the average person can kind of whittle down to their own life. And, 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 and it's, and, and, you know, this, this is a subject for another podcast, but, you know, the value of um, so much attention to those issues versus larger policy ones, well, clearly people want to understand what really matters to them. And maybe that's why they don't get interested in what happens at the Capitol and other times. But at the same point, um, you know, those bigger policy issues have, a huge long-term impact versus some of the short-term stuff. I, I I don't really know where I would go with that, but it is it is noticeable that we you know we get something like this that people can you know debate around the dinner table, the you know the the bar at happy hour, and boy, you can get really powerful emotions. I want to talk about what happens next with this. Um, yeah, because let's because obviously it's got to go to the Senate. Um, the conventional wisdom is the Senate is going to. Um, concur in the amendments that happen in the assembly, um, which means it gets to the governor's desk. There is a sense among people at the Capitol that the governor is inclined to sign it. He's never said that officially. The governor rarely takes a position on a bill sitting on his desk, uh, or until it's sitting on his desk, I should say. But there's a there's a sense that the governor would sign it, um, and some people would like him to sign it quickly. There's At least I've heard a few people around the Capitol talk about that there is vaccine fatigue in Sacramento, which I think opponents of this bill would latch onto as as thinking either a that they are winning, that they are you know they're pushing back, or that you know they decry you know a fast tracking of something that they care passionately about. But then what? If you're an opponent of SB 277 and the governor signs it into law, which means it takes effect next year, wasn't take effect immediately. You've got the courts and you've got the ballots. You could go to court and try to challenge it legally. Or you could try to file a referendum and have it overturned on the ballot in 2016. Neither of those uh, are going to be easy uh, unless you, as an opponent or opponents of the bill, have some real resources, right? Yeah. And I said, I think last week that I wasn't sure that they did. And I, I got some pushback from some political so- consultants in Sacramento who oh, said did they you? do. Oh, did you? Yeah. Uh, it'll, it, I don't know whether that's true. I, I didn't get any details. But I mean... I think a lawsuit is all but guaranteed. Um, and I would I would put my money on at least the attempt of an initiative. I don't know that it would actually get on the ballot or be successful. But, um, yeah, who knows? Maybe in a couple of years we'll be talking about a Supreme Court decision on this issue because it does really seem to have caught fire. Um, I read an interesting op-ed in the New York Times about it where this guy was saying that 
he he supports vaccines and he was saying that he hates the fact that it's been politicized, that California went about it the wrong way, which I thought was interesting. I mean, this obviously all came out of, you know, a very visceral issue, a measles outbreak in California. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think this is the end of the conversation. Um, but, you know, it's it's going to be a very different conversation if it lands in the courts or on the ballot. And I think that we'll have... Um, some break from it. And I, and I don't think it's fair to say that just because people are fatigued that that means, you know, folks, the opponents won in a way. Clearly, this bill is moving through. And, you know, I think it, it went through the legislative process. I'm not sure you can argue that folks didn't have a chance to have their say. And with that, let's um, let's have our say, so to speak, bad transition on uh, a little bit of a weekly side dish, our little moment in the California Politics Podcast where we try to kind of find uh, a smaller morsel of political news from the week. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean they're not important morsels, but we're just kind of taking a, a, a little sampling of them and moving on. So um, what do you got this week? And by the way, I'll tell people again, you can find Marisa on Twitter at M Lagos. What's, uh, what's your side dish? So I wrote a piece this week um, with the help of maplight.org, which is a nonpartisan data crunching campaign finance site. Uh, they looked at the November, um, well, the last basically, uh, you know, cycle for the legislature and found that of the sitting legislature on average, if you take, you know, all the money that they had to raise over that two year period to, to win their office, that it essentially boils down to an average about fundraising about a thousand dollars a day. Um, the averages in, in each house were a little different. The Senate had to raise a little more, about one point one million on average. It was closer to eight hundred and forty thousand than the assembly. And what was really interesting was that when you take out some of the sort of outlying races, if you look at, you know, some of the most competitive races where just huge money flowed in, and if you take out, you know, the, the leadership in both houses who tend to raise a lot so that they can help other Democrats get elected, you still have these really high averages. Um, and so, you know, I think good government advocates and people that, that are clamoring for campaign finance reform think that this speaks to just how much time and energy lawmakers need to expend on fundraising, not just doing the work of lawmaking. Um, and, you know, yeah, a 1500 a day, 1100 a day, 365 days a year. I mean, that, that probably takes some time. So some interesting numbers. Um, I think next I really want to look into independent expenditures because that's where we're seeing a lot of money being raised. And, you know, clearly under state law, there's not supposed to be any coordination between lawmakers and those folks. But, you know, a lot of the people raising money for IEs are also involved in the political process. And so, you know, I think it, it just raises questions about access and influence and, as I said, just sheer time involved in this kind of activity. Well, and independent expenditures have always been interesting to me because, you know, with this national narrative that we have now about super PACs, and of course, we're coming up on that great big discussion of those again with the 2016 presidential election. Um, I mean, the model of the super PAC universe in, in the wake of Citizens United has been California for much longer, for uh, the better part of the last uh, 14, 15 years. Um, we were already in that universe with independent expenditures and these issues of coordination and where the money really flows and unlimited amounts that you can get or spend as you are not as long as you are not, quote unquote, coordinated with a candidate. Um, they're fascinating issues to watch. So you're right. Yeah. And a, I, just just as a quick aside, I know I'm always like sort of 
chuckling as, you know, often people on the left in, in California rail against Citizens United, sort of forgetting that we've had the system for far longer. So, yeah. It's a, uh, it's never, you know, it's it's a talker. It's something that I think people care about, and they should, and and it's something we'll continue to cover. So my side dish this week, and you can find me on Twitter at John Myers. Uh, my side dish is is something we've talked about. Boy, you know, it's interesting. I th- I was thinking back to the podcast over the last few months where we initially said, oh, this was only a side dish thing because it was just such a bizarre. Um, really nutty, uh, sorry, I'm going to give a little bit of a soapbox uh, measure, and then it got a little more serious because it raised larger issues, and now I'm I'm putting it back in the side dish just simply because I think it's kind of the end of a chapter um, in in a lot of ways. So this week, a, a uh, judge in Sacramento uh, ruled um, that Attorney General Kamala Harris does not have to issue a title and summary to an initiative that would have expressly allowed the murder of gay men and women in California. Uh, the author, uh, an, an Orange County attorney who has been almost completely radio silent after putting this uh, initiative forward, um, he called it the Sodomite Suppression Act, and it has gotten a lot of attention. And it is a, a very uncomfortable and, and dangerous-sounding proposal. Anyway, the attorney general did not want to issue a title and summary because she said there was basically nothing legal in it. We shouldn't put something in front of the voters that was patently illegal. And the judge agreed. The judge said she does not have to issue a title and summary. Um, and I think that is the part that is worth focusing on. I mean, what the... What the um, Orange County guy does from here on, you know, we'll watch, but it's not the bigger deal. But to me, the fascinating part is how isolated this ruling is or is not about the power of the attorney general, because it's a very um, often talked about delicate little dance between the attorney general as the single um, part of the of the actual government, really, that gets to um, uh have a role in the initiative process, which was designed to be an outside way at writing laws and to not have a role in official government. The attorney general uh, crafts the title and summary, uh, and those have been criticized in the past as being overly subjective and written in ways to either um, make an initiative sound better or make it sound worse. And so now we have this one ruling that says the attorney general uh, cannot can refuse to write a title and summary if um, if that actual proposed initiative is unconstitutional or illegal. And I just wonder if there's any precedent at all that will be set there or a one-time thing. No one seems to disagree with the fact that this initiative is reprehensible. You get wide condemnation of it. But there is disagreement about whether or not the court should have gone in this or we should have allowed this initiative to die a natural death by never getting signatures and never making the ballot. So we'll see. Well, there's also just the question of, like, who decides what's constitutional. And, you know, as you said, there's already been questions raised in the past about the sort of objectivity of uh, or subjectivity, rather, of the attorney general, you know, not just Kamala Harris, but we've heard those complaints in, in previous administrations. And so, you know, this one, again, like was very clearly, I think it's fair to say, unconstitutional. <laughs> there might be other issues where you could make the argument either way. And so that's, I think, where this is going to be, you know, sort of a fascinating ruling to follow up on in the, in the coming years. 
So good transition, I think, out of our side dish into our final topic, uh, talking about constitutionality and the courts. Um, everybody yeah. already knows this story, and, and it's a national story in so many ways, but obviously happening here on Friday as we're sitting here uh, recording this week's California Politics Podcast. Uh, the ruling out of the U.S. Supreme Court in Washington, D.C., in the same-sex marriage case and the last of several same-sex marriage cases that we have seen in recent times go to the high court. Five to four, with Anthony Kennedy being the deciding swing vote uh, for the majority, uh, legalizing same-sex marriage in all 50 states, uh, removing the barriers that have been put up in various states, which have included constitutional amendments in those states against same-sex marriages. Um, obviously, um, great elation in um, in certain communities and, sa- and great elation in com- in some. Com- One more time. Great elation in certain communities in California, uh, especially in the Bay Area, especially in San Francisco. Big rally held there on Friday with a lot of California politicians, including some comments from a guy who's been very involved, personally involved in this fight for a long time, uh, Mark Leno, Democratic State Senator of San Francisco. Today, San Francisco values become America's values. When we took the law that Gavin Newsom decided he would break because it was clearly unconstitutional, but he knew that back then, to the state legislature, there were a lot of Democrats who were afraid of it. Somehow it was considered politically dangerous. But when we put it at Arnold Schwarzenegger's desk in 2005, yes, to face a veto, and brought it back and put it on his desk again in 2007, we had dispelled the myth that there's anything politically dangerous for standing up for the respect and dignity and validation all human life because we had twice as many co-authors on the bill and we had many more votes for it when we put it on his desk. Clearly not a man of vision. I suspect he will be long remembered in California history as the George Wallace of California's struggle for equal marriage rights, standing at the door, blocking the door of the Hall of Justice and saying no, not once, but twice. But we've come long and far from that day. And of course, those are some powerful, pretty explosive comments, if you think about them, that harken back to that fight in Sacramento. There's not much that we can put on the national part of the story, uh, you know, but, you know, Marisa, I think it's hard to ignore the many California parts here, right? I mean, we think all the way back to the initial ballot measure in 2000, Prop 22, that was all about out-of-state marriages and whether or not we should condone them, and it passed. And that was kind of part of the national stu- uh, part of the national discussion of this particular case. Um, the public opinion here that has mirrored the national public opinion shifting um, and the careers of several California politicians. It's going to be really interesting to see um, in a state that's already made peace with this, it seems like in some ways, what this ruling means. Yeah, I mean, you know, another Politico that was up um, really emotional and, and happy today was Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom, who was San Francisco's mayor in 2004 when he ordered the city clerk to start marrying gay couples. And I think it's really um I think that moment, a lot of people in San Francisco really feel like started in earnest the debate, not just here, but nationally. You know, Gavin... Newsom was asked not to come to the Democratic convention. Um, He's now said he's running for governor in 2018. So I think this really vindicated folks like him. And and this is it's Pride weekend in San Francisco. So the party is not going to end today by any means here. Um, 
I do think it's interesting, you know, nationally to see. I haven't seen really any statements in my inbox, not to say I'm on every press list, but from from Republicans in California um, denouncing this. We have seen a lot of consternation on the part of the Republican field in the, the presidential race. And so I think what you talked about, you know, public opinion polls have shifted. This certainly this issue isn't over. Um, I was listening to David Boyce, who argued for uh, gay marriage in the Prop 8 case in California, talking about, you know, when the government ends discrimination, that doesn't mean discrimination is over, right? And we've seen this in the last few weeks with the terrible events in South Carolina. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the conversation now shifts to that. But it, it really is, for a lot of people, a special day. And um, for a lot of politicians, I think, very vindicating to see the highest court in the land, you know, embrace this and send a message that uh, clearly a lot of other people are not happy about. Well, and and again, on those California elements to this, things that I've just been struck um, uh, watching the reaction here in the early hours. So again, as with so many cases in the U.S. Supreme Court over the last 25 years, really, um, Anthony Kennedy, um, who was appointed to the high court by President Ronald Reagan in 1987, uh, the man in the middle and the five to four ruling and the ruling um, and the opinion written by Justice Kennedy, uh, very powerful um, historical feel to a lot of, of a lot of what he wrote. Anthony Kennedy, a native of Sacramento, a uh, great profile of Kennedy's uh, early life and his California and Sacramento life a few days ago in the New York Times. If you haven't read it, I really encourage folks to read it. It's a fascinating window into who Anthony Kennedy is. And uh, moments in his life where uh, acceptance of, um, of people, of gay men and women, uh, was really fascinating. And his uh, very close relationship with the man who really legitimized the McGeorge School of Law, which is now part of the University of the Pacific here in Sacramento, uh, a man named uh, Gordon Schrader, and who, you know, there was discussion, you know, was he a man who had to live a private life because um, uh, homosexuality was not condoned in the 50s? And and no one ever was able, the, the article kind of goes back and forth as to whether or not, you know, what his sexual orientation was. But it talks a lot about Mr. Kennedy's feeling and the feeling of, you know, those communities in this community in Sacramento back then, um, that there was acceptance of people who come from different walks of life and how that might have influenced uh Anthony Kennedy, Tony Kennedy, as they called him back in the day. So I thought that was a great read. And and then, yeah, we we don't know where this plays politically moving forward. I think Newsom in that 2018 governor's race, uh, you're going to hear this a lot. He was out very front here uh, on Friday. Uh, governor Brown talked about it. Uh, those four dissents, those individual dissents from the justices, um, and the Antonin Scalia dissent, which is getting a lot of attention, but that great moment in it where he talks about um, that the court doesn't have a single Southwesterner or even a genuine Westerner. And he puts in parentheses, California does not count. <laughs> I mean, what? I like how he likes to spell that out. I mean, just, I love that. I, I love it. And it's just, you know, if you, another little jab to uh, Anthony Kennedy. But anyway, it's it's a fascinating story. It, it is going to resonate for a long time. And I do love these California connections, both in the actual issue and the players and where it goes from here. So, 
it'll be um, be one to watch, I guess, to keep watching. And we should note that as we were taping our podcast, the governor announced that he was appointing uh, Luis Lavin to the Second Court of Appeal, which is, uh, according to the governor, would he would be the first openly gay justice to serve on that court if he's confirmed. So everyone's getting into the act today in California, at least. It's an interesting day. It's a, it's, 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 it's a fun day to be a reporter, I think, too, to kind of watch all this play out. And uh, next week, I got to watch the high court on redistricting. But that's another podcast. We will that's save that for tease. next week. <laughs> right. Anthony can come back and, and, and really dig into that one with us, I suppose. Um, so that'll do it for this week's California Politics Podcast. Uh, that's Marisa Lagos from KQED. And I'm John Myers from KQED. As always, we thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.